name is... All is known to me. Your name is Billy Batson. You did not pry into the secret of the Scorpion. That is why I am here. But where did you come from? Out of the past, my son. Down through the ages to guard the secret of the Scorpion. You've been alive all these years? What you call life returned to me when your friends violated the tomb of the Scorpion. Well, they meant no harm. Then they should have obeyed the inscription on the tomb. The harm has been done. It is your duty to see that the curse of the Scorpion is not visited upon innocent people. My duty? Yes. So long as the Golden Scorpion may fall into the hands of selfish men, it is the duty of Captain Marvel to protect the innocent from its evil use. But who is Captain Marvel? You are my son. All that is necessary is to repeat my name, Shazam. By its repetition, you will become Captain Marvel and take on the virtues you see recorded there. The wisdom of Solomon, the strength of Hercules, the stamina of Atlas, the power of Zeus, the great courage of Achilles, and the speed of Mercury. You must never call upon this power except in the service of right. To do so would bring the scorpion's curse upon your own head. And now, my son, repeat my name and return to the rescue of your friends. Shazam! Hello and welcome to the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me this week to talk about one of the great, maybe the greatest, movie serial of all time, 1941's The Adventures of Captain Marvel, is our pal from the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, Michael Lane. Hi, Michael. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you here. Now, this is your first appearance on Film and Water, but this is not your first appearance with me on a podcast talking about Captain Marvel, because, of course, you were on the Treasury Cast episode where we talked about the Wiz Comics famous first edition. So, uh, for anyone who hasn't heard that episode, like, are you a particular fan of Captain Marvel? Is that why we're, we're sort of fo- you're following from show to show talking about this character? <laughs> Definitely. He is one of my all-time favorite superheroes. I Even though I didn't get into... Um, comics until i was 11 i got into superheroes as a small child and it basically was who who did i see on tv or film and they played the shazam show in my area it was in rerun by then by the age i can remember it because i was born in 73 but because of that i became familiar with him very quickly and became a fan when did you first see the the serial i i never knew it i had seen pictures of it in very various treasury comics you know they had those like back matter things where it would be like you know, DC comic characters on the silver screen, and they would show some picture of Tom Tyler in his Captain Marvel uniform, and I never saw it. I was like, well, you know, where's this? So I didn't see it until uh, I worked at my the video store that I worked at, and they had it uh, on VHS, and that's where I first saw it. Where did you first come across it? I, I didn't know that he actually had one. Well, I became familiar after a few years, but it w- I had been collecting comics for probably seven, eight, nine years before somewhere I finally read that he was in a movie serial. And I had already become familiar with movie serials before then. Because when I, would, I grew up in my teen years in South Carolina and Georgia, and I would go to conventions a lot. And there was one convention, I can't remember the name of it, but they would always have a room set aside where they would just play stuff on like a movie screen all day. They would be old movies or blooper reels. or I, I first saw the Superman Fleischer cartoons there, and they were playing movie serials. And I saw like Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, and that's kind of my first intro to movie serials. But it was a number of years more before somewhere I finally read that Captain Marvel had one. But even then, I think it was probably not until my early 20s when I finally saw a bootleg for sale at the convention and picked it up. What did you think of it when you first saw it? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I, clearly I'm biased for the character. But by that time, I'd seen you know quite a few movie serials. And I definitely thought his was, by definitely without a doubt, the best superhero one I'd seen. I think it's more solid than Superman, Batman, the others. I don't know if I put it the best overall, but if not, it's definitely near the top. It's it's remarkable when you think about because this was produced by uh, Republic Pictures, who was kind of a B level studio in the '40s, and yet they really 
put all their effort into this thing. And then when you compare it to, say, the Superman or Batman movie serials, uh, which are much more chintzy and, and, and you know, to me, nowhere near the high quality as the Captain Marvel, and yet they were produced by Columbia Pictures, which was had much more money at, uh, on hand than Republic ever had. But Republic, I guess, really wanted to take this seriously. And according to legend, Republic approached uh, DC with the idea of doing a Superman movie serial. And by that point, DC had already sold the rights to Fleischer to make those cartoons, which you just mentioned, which, of course, were, are fantastic. But they owned the Superman rights across the board. Now, even though Fleischer had no intention of making a live-action Superman serial or movie, they had the rights. And so they were like, no, 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 we're going to make these cartoons. So that left Republic with, you know, like, well, all right, we can't do Superman. So they went basically sort of down the street to Fawcett and got the rights to Captain Marvel. And they really put together uh, an amazing uh, chapter play of this of this thing. Because it really, I first said when I first saw it, you know, I didn't see it as a kid. I saw it as a quote-unquote adult. But even then I was able to appreciate, like, this is really pretty sharp. You know, the flying effects are really good. Uh, the the uniform, Captain Marvel's uniform, looks you know, pretty much right out of the comics. Tom Tyler looked kind of close to what I, you know, what I always pictured Captain Marvel uh, to look like with the slightly squinty eyes and stuff like that. I mean, they really did a nice job. And it, it, it was ended up being the first ever live-action adaptation of a comic book, uh, which is remarkable that they, they were – they had much like uh, – you know, Richard Donner and the crew on the Superman movie in 1978, you know, Republic didn't have anybody anybody to copy. You know, they just had to make all this stuff up on their own. They didn't have anybody to say, well, this is how so-and-so did it, because there wasn't a Superman serial until 1948. So, you know, Republic was really you know, sort of flying blind, not to, uh, you know, uh, no pun intended. Uh, the plot of this such is such that it's a group of archaeologists discover the golden scorpion in Thailand, a sort of philosopher's stone. A hooded figure known as the scorpion tries to steal it, so the scientists divide up the lenses that make it work. But the scorpion starts bumping off the archaeologists one by one to retrieve the lenses. Billy Batson, his friend Whitey, and Betty Wallace try to solve the mystery of who is the scorpion. And it's interesting is that the origin of Captain Marvel, which is pretty straightforward here and pretty much right out of the comics, and that there's this old wizard named Shazam who gives Billy Batson the power to turn into Captain Marvel, is tied so directly to this whole thing with the Scorpion. That's like the major change they make from the comics is that, you know, there's none of the stuff with the subway and all that stuff. Like it's all of this takes place basically overseas, and that's how Captain Marvel gets started. Yeah, that is the one major difference was that he is Captain Marvel is so tied to the Scorpion. And I'll hold off. There's one thing about that that bothers me, but I'll wait until it gets to the end of the show. But I also found interesting, and this is not just in the first episode, but all the stuff that um, the, I thought the effects in this series is really good for the time period. And particularly for movie serials, because movie serials, they're notoriously done on the cheap. I mean, they went out of the way to have people wear the same clothes, drive the same vehicles, so they could reuse footage repeatedly in different series. And that wasn't just Republic. That was all the companies. And so the way they pulled off the flying effect, you know, now that we've seen, you know, Chris Reeves and Superman and stuff, I know it may look a little cheesy, but I think for the time period, it was a great effect they did. And there's certain scenes, like at one point they're on a ship during a storm, you know, the bridge. I mean, I think they did a really good job for what they had at the time, particularly, like you said, since they've never done a superhero one before. It does feel like they kind of went all out on it. Yeah, I mean, the, what they, the, the effects crew basically put together an oversized dummy that they put in a Captain Marvel uniform, and they slid him across a wire, and the wire apparently was, was sort of invisible to cameras, but they actually managed to do some pretty nifty effects with that dummy. Like, they have him arc at one point, like when he jumps off a building, he kind of arcs up and then goes down, and it actually you know, looks pretty lifelike. Uh, like I said, even at the age that I saw that, I was pretty impressed with what they were able to do. Um, the cast is uh, is led off by Frank Coughlin, the young actor. He plays uh, Billy Batson. Uh, ironically enough, his final role was on an episode of the Shazam TV series. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it was called, oh, I had the name of it a minute ago, The Braggart, because he happened to work at the zoo they were filming at that day. Is that really how it got, that's how it happened? Yeah, he was the PR director for the zoo, and um, 
they were they had already had nothing to do with him them going there, but they had scheduled to film the episode of the zoo, and he just happened to mention to the director that hey, I played Billy Bats in the movie serial, so wow. of course they're like, oh, we got to get into this episode, so they wrote a little scene of dialogue for him to come on and talk, and it's funny because if you watch it, his voice is exactly the same as it is because I always thought his voice was kind of the way it was because he was playing the character younger because he was twenty five when he was in this, and Billy's supposed to be a good number of years younger than that. But when you see him in the Shazam show, he pretty much sounds exactly the same, even though it's like 40-something years later. Oh, that's funny. Oh, I did. I thought maybe they went and got him or something for the for the role. That's funny. That was just pure happenstance. Oh, that's funny. It's nice, though, because, you know, nowadays they go out of the way to do that. Give yeah. little, you know, cameos or parts to the character. You know, especially Superman. Everyone who's ever in a Superman show now comes back and appears in the next series or something. But this was kind of one of the first times that ever occurred, and it happened totally by accident. Huh. That's cool. Uh, Tom, as I mentioned, Tom Tyler played Captain Marvel. Tom Tyler was mostly a cowboy actor. Uh, his other sort of notable genre role was as the mummy. He played the mummy in a couple of the Universal uh, sequels. Uh, William Benedict is Whitey Murphy, who's kind of like the Jimmy Olsen, basically, of, of this uh, serial. Louise Curry plays Betty Wallace. Louise Curry was a veteran of movie serials. She would go on to do two different uh, movie serials with uh, Bella Lugosi. Robert Strange uh, plays uh, one of the scientists, sort of Harry Worth. And then Nigel de Brulier, I guess that's how you say it, plays Shazam. He only appears in the uh, the first chapter. Uh, his other notable credit is he was in the 1923 silent version of Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, what did you think of, um, I mean, we can go through this chapter by chapter. I guess let, that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's do that. It's 12 chapters. Uh, the titles are Curse of the Scorpion, The Guillotine, Time Bomb, Death Takes the Wheel, The Scorpion Strikes, Lens of Death, Human Targets, Boomerang, Dead Man's Trip, Trap, excuse me, Doom Ship, Valley of Death, and it ends with Captain Marvel's Secret. Now, one of the things that, you know, movie serials are not meant to be watched all in a row because they are so repetitive. I mean, they, they have the cliffhanger at the end, and then the next chapter starts with like a good two to three minutes of watching the same footage over again. So to catch you up, because obviously they were meant to be watched a week apart, and they wouldn't expect necessarily the kids would remember what happened last time. So that the only negative part I see to watching these movie serials all in one chunk is that they're just not they do get repetitive. But again, they weren't meant to be watched like that, so you have to kind of take that into into consideration. But I mean, the opening chapter. Let's talk about that. The Curse of the Scorpion. Um, what did you think of that? The opening chapter, because that's really the 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 setup and the origin. Well, I do really like how they did the origin. I do have an issue with how closely tied it is, again, to the Scorpion itself. But as far as his conversation with Shazam, plays out so similarly to the comics. One weird thing about this, though, is this this is supposed to be set in Siam, which is Thailand. No one that's a native in this looks remotely like they're actually from Thailand. <laughs> they right. all look – they're clearly intended to be like Middle Eastern in their their mannerisms and their clothing – and um, also the whole – all the ruins, though, to me look Egyptian. Like they're going out of the way to make like the scorpion and all the stuff in the museum. So there's this weird mesh of cultures, which I guess wasn't that unusual to TV or film of the day. But nowadays, you know, when we're a bit more aware of other cultures, it kind of jumps out at you. I was surprised Billy – and this is kind of a recurring thing throughout. Billy takes a really long time to change into Shazam. <laughs> Like, yeah, it does, yeah, they they and even when he does, it's only he's only Captain Marvel uh, for about thirty seconds in the first chapter. Yeah, which in a way, I mean, I love Tom Tyler's look. I love the costume. I think it's probably the best job they did on any superhero. But I don't think Tom Tyler's the world's strongest actor. No. But fortunately, the way they use him so minimally in this, I think there's only really like three occasions where he. Um, has to say more than a line or two throughout the whole thing. Coglin clearly does the heavy lifting throughout. But, so I'm wondering if that, you know, it worked out for the best that they did do that, even though sometimes you're looking at Billy thinking, why don't you just change? You could save so much time now and save people if you just changed. <laughs> yeah. But um, I was impressed with the fight scenes. I thought they were pretty well done. Uh, I like that the professor at that one point, he, when he gets into the fight scene, he, he holds his own pretty well. And uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, 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 you go ahead. I also like that Cap at one point just straight out shoots a bunch of guys. I mean, that's what I was going to get to. Yeah, there's a point where a bunch of bad guys are getting away, and Cap sees a machine gun like on a, one of those tripods, and he just gets behind it and just mows the guys down. <laughs> anyway, it's basically the Punisher for a few minutes in this. Yeah. And it's just so startling with the image we have of Captain Marvel today. 
Yeah. Um, the, the, you mentioned about Tom Tyler not being the strongest actor. I think maybe other, another reason is his voice it was kind of reedy and a little high-pitched. And it's just not the voice you expect from Captain Marvel. You know, when I hear, when I think of Captain Marvel, I kind of hear, think of this deep sort of voice, not this kind of exciting thing. You know, I'm Captain Marvel. It's not quite that bad, but it's it's just it's not that sort of basso profundo voice that I'm expecting. And so maybe between that and the fact that, as you said, he was really more of a stuntman. I mean, obviously, he would say when he played the mummy, he doesn't have any lines as the mummy. He just walks around. And as a, you know, in the in the early days, if you were a cowboy actor, you were it was mostly stuntmen, you know. That's how you got the gig. Was that you didn't? They didn't worry so much about that you knew how to read lines as it was that you could fall off horses and get shot and do all these sorts of things. So I think they were sort of looking at him as you know he could do the physical aspect of it, and he and he handles that very well. Um, it said in the in the initial chapter we do get to see all the flying effects, and one of the other things I like that they do is camera wise, uh, in terms of the direction. By the way, this is directed by a guy named William Whitney who continued to direct uh, projects as late as 1982, which is amazing when you think about it. It's like a 40-year directing career. Um, you see the, 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 the dummy, the Captain Marvel dummy, sometimes it comes towards the camera, sometimes it goes away from the camera. Like, instead of just planning him, you know, going from side to side, they actually, you know, managed to contrive some nice photographic, you know, effects com- combined with the dummy which I thought gave it even more of sort of a visual life. But, um, you know, I like it. They said all that. I mean, you're going to see all the stuff that you see in the first chapter of how they use Captain Marvel. You're basically going to see it over and over again. But it's a, it's a good setup. I, if anything, it's just too brief. Because, like, after he turns into Captain Marvel, he immediately goes back to being Billy Batson, and he gets bound and gagged. Which he's, <laughs> Billy is constantly being bound and gagged, as if people that are kidnapping him know they have to keep him quiet. Otherwise, he could turn into Captain Marvel. Because he's always getting some piece of rag shoved in his mouth. Yeah, that is a thing from the comics, too. That happens, too. But like you said, the people there actually know, you know, why they're doing it. There's a purpose there. But poor Billy has probably been gagged more than any character in the history of fiction at this point. (laughs) So the the first chapter ends with Captain Marvel um, laying on this sort of like a conveyor belt, and he's about to be cut in half by a guillotine. They have this this bad guy has a guillotine put into his house, uh, for God's sakes. And that opens up the second chapter. And... It's a pretty nice effect. I mean, of course, as it opens up, we see the blade actually come down. And when it hits Captain Marvel's body, it just basically shatters because Captain Marvel is is invulnerable. But I actually thought that was like a pretty nifty, like they didn't cheat. You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of like in uh, Indiana Jones where his hat is, you know, coming down, where the door is coming down. He's got to grab his hat. The door is never quite as far down as it looks in one shot as it is to another because that's Spielberg cheating a little bit on purpose. But in the second chapter, they don't cheat. Like, the, the blade actually does come down. It just shatters because Captain Marvel's invulnerable, which I thought was a pretty decent cliffhanger. Yeah, one of the things I like about this serial is they never cheat like that. They do, They remain consistent throughout the entire serial. And what I mean is in other movie serials, it almost got absurd. Sometimes you could see a car go off a cliff. And then the next week when they picked up somehow that car never even went off the cliff (laughs) to save it from happening. And Captain Marvel doesn't do that in any of these, whatever happens when it picks up the next week, there's some kind of, you know, at least semi-logical way that they were able to get out of what happens. So I give them a lot of credit for not going down that kind of ridiculous path that some of them did. Yeah, I also like in the in the second chapter that there is some nice displays of Captain Marvel's strength. Like, you see him kick through a window, he bends metal bars, he throws a guy off a bridge at one point. Like, they actually kind of make him, like, be this roughhousing kind of guy, which I really like. So I thought the first two... The first two chapters are actually really good. And actually, I'm a little confused. The blade comes down at the end of the second one, not the end of the first one, because it's it's the third chapter, Time Bomb, where we see the blade hit Marvel. But I'm a, Oh, yeah, that's yeah, right. The, the stuff does all run, run together. Um, it, <laughs> it's like you said, they're not really meant to be watched in one sitting. Right. And I would actually tell anyone listening who's never seen these, if you're inclined to check it out after the show, I wouldn't expect to sit down and watch these. I would recommend you know watching an episode or two, moving away from it, and then coming back and checking out another episode or two later. Yes, I yeah, I totally agree with that. And they said this this um, this uh, whole serial is available on YouTube, all twelve chapters, and that's how I watched it, which was which was really fun just to watch it again. I, and I kind of did what you were talking about. I didn't watch it all in one setting. I watched it like four chapters, and then I went off and did some other things for a couple hours, and then I came back to watch like two more, and then the next day I watched three more. So it was kind of a better way to to do it. Uh, in chapter three, which is Time Bomb, uh, Marvel has his first 
dialogue other than just hearing hearing him say Shazam, uh, which again was where you hear that hear that voice. And like you said, you know, like if I was Billy Batson, I would always just be Captain Marvel all the time. I would never, I would not bother being <laughs> Billy Batson. I think I'd be like, this is awesome. I get to do all this cool stuff. I would just be Marvel all the time. Yeah, one weird thing about Billy too is if you remember the first episode when. The professor and all the other scientists were kind of gathered around. They kind of treated Billy like he was a really young kid. Like they kind of went out of the way at one point to suggest that Billy was kind of too young to be involved in their little scorpion circle. But throughout this serial, he's going to continue to kind of age and how they treat him. I mean, he's flying a plane by the time we get through like the third episode, which is pretty, you know, suggest he's a good bit older than what they were treating him in the first one. Like in the first one, you kind of get the sense he might be only like 15 or 16. Right. But I think once he's on the plane in this one, he's got to be at least, you know, 19 or 20, you know? Yeah. Uh, in chapter four, death takes the wheel. Uh, Captain Marvel, uh, threatens to throw a guy onto a bed of nails, which I think is great. That's kind of an old timey thing. You don't see beds, beds of nails anymore. That's kind of more of a, a threat from the old days. But I like that Marvel was just so willing to do that. Like he's just, and you know, most, you know, superheroes, of course, did that in the 40s because you're talking about them. I mean, Marvel's not taking on Nazis here, but there was always that kind of like, you know, we don't have time for this. Super Batman mowed guys down and Superman killed guys like people were just, you know, more comfortable with their superheroes being a lot more brutal. I mean, if you look at all the old covers from the Marvel comics from the 40s of Captain America and the Submariner and the Human Torch, they're like mowing guys down by the metric ton. Like they're just not worried about it at all. Yeah, I do always found it interesting, and it's not just limited to, to comic books and kind of superhero things, but I think it's a general pop culture thing that I know in our lifetime we've heard a lot about, oh, movies, music, corrupting children, concern about you know what they hear and listen to. But the farther you go back in time, the more violent and ugly children's entertainment gets. <laughs> and it's like what we see in the 40s, you know, the level of murder and you know careless disregard for life and stuff you know, blows away anything in comics since that time. And even Captain Marvel, like his first year or two of comics, they played it fairly straight. It was not like the whimsical comics they kind of evolved into as the 40s went on. But even in that whimsical era, people died all the time. And I mean, Captain Marvel, you know, it wasn't unusual in the story, even in Fawcett and his sort of humorous tales to see characters dying. So this serial is pretty consistent with what you see in the comic books of the era. Right, because right, this was this was made when Captain Marvel was only like a year old at that point, and there's even obviously they never would have done a major supervillain in the serial because of probably budgetary considerations. But even if they could have afforded it, this Captain Marvel could not face Mister Mind, you know, or or Black Adam or something. It just wouldn't fit. This is just a much grittier take on the character. Yeah, it goes back at that time. I mean, even comics in the first few years didn't really have supervillains. They were fighting mobsters, you know, corrupt politicians and stuff. And this fits very much. I mean, you do have the scorpion in his costume, but this fits much more in that early comic book mold of the type of characters he's fighting pretty well. The uh, the um, the movie series love their hooded villains. They love they love that being like a hook. Like, who is the mysterious scorpion? And you're like, I have to admit, I kind of didn't care. I was like, you know, I just want to see the Scorpion face off against Captain Marvel. I don't really, and they keep trying to make it like a thing because obviously you're figuring that one of the scientists is the Scorpion. You know, it's coming from within, and you know, ultimately, I don't really care. And in in Chapter Six, Lens of Death, there's this shot of two of the archaeologists that maybe they're trying to throw suspicion on, and they're kind of like these beady-eyed guys, and like, like, oh, okay, and you're like, you know, I don't really care. I, I, none of these people are particularly characters to me, so. When one of them gets unmasked as the Scorpion, you're like, eh, okay. And that kind of ha- same thing happened um, in the Superman 1948 serial because they were trying to make it that who is the Atom Man, and you're like, everyone knows it's Luthor. We, we know it's Luthor. Stop trying to make this, this suspenseful. But in um, I didn't mean to jump ahead there. In Chapter Five, which is the Scorpion Strikes, uh, Betty gets into a jam, and she actually gets herself out of it. She doesn't need Billy to save her, or Captain Marvel to save her, which I actually thought was pretty cool. Because um, she's clearly kind of like the lowest lane of this storyline. So I like that she gets out of her own trouble. And then it ends with uh, Captain Marvel being trapped in a mine that gets flooded. And it actually has really good rear projection. There's all this stuff of Tom Tyler in the foreground and in the background to see the, the mine getting flooded. And it's actually a really convincing effect. Oh, I agree. Actually, I bet in my notes that I thought the whole melting effect in the mountain 
and the exterior shots mixed together, that was one of the best moments effects-wise in the whole series. I thought it was very effective. Yeah, it was really well done. Like I said, these, these are, for, for how much money these guys must have had, they actually do a really decent job. Uh, one thing I, I do have to follow up, though, when you were talking about the BDI thing, this chapter, by now they get into, it becomes a recurring thing where they're all sitting around that table talking about what happened to whatever the latest member of their party to get killed. And they just, the way they pan around each person and they're just looking so suspicious and guilty at the same time and everyone at the table, that just continued to make me chuckle throughout yeah. the whole series. Because they're yeah. just going so far out of the way to make you not trust anybody. Right. And the eyes are always darting back and forth between each character. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, all right, I, fine, whatever. Just just give me Captain Marvel Smash and stuff. That's more what I want. Uh, in Chapter 6, there's a great bit where uh, there's a fight in a living room. And the two actors, like, managed to smash every article, every prop <laughs> in the room. And I almost feel like the director was like, all right, boys, have at it. Like, just, you know, we'll, we'll just we'll set this up with three cameras. We'll just do one take. Because they smash a lamp, the desk, they knock crap over. I mean, the, the set m- must have been unusable by the time they were done with it. And it's just, it's really, because they, it's, it's clearly, like, the stuntmen. And they're just doing all these, like, roundhouse punches and all this stuff. And it's, it's, it's not the greatest fight scene in the world because it's, it's done from far away and they're just these two guys swinging each other. But the amount of crap that they break is really fun to watch. This was probably the only chapter that actually got a little bit into who the Scorpion was. Not, not that I really care in the end, but that character Fisher, they just went so out of the way to make him seem suspicious that it was the only time I felt like, Oh, there's no way he's the Scorpion. Right. This is just they're dude, they're focusing way too much on this guy and making him look bad. That that was probably the most engaged I got in that mystery during the whole thing. Uh, in the chapter seven, there's a sequence where you have somebody falling off a dam, which is actually a really nice effect too, because they clearly, like, they're not faking it. They clearly threw like a dummy off of a real dam, uh, which I actually thought really good. Betty gets bunked on the head with some debris, which actually looks really painful. <laughs> you look like it caused some serious damage to her skull, and she get. I mean, I know it's like. <laughs> You know, it's a balsa wood prop, but when you see her get hit, it's like, wow, she could actually end up with uh, some severe brain damage in that one. This, you know, even though I pointed out earlier, Tyler is not, like, the strongest actor, the scene he has with his first conversation with Betty, because I think this is the first time they really talk to each other, I do think he kind of tried to change his demeanor to be a bit more childlike, hmm. which, which I kind of thought was a good touch for him, considering he is, you know, Billy Batson and, you know, this young guy who cares for Betty. It was kind of a subtle thing, but I kind of appreciate I thought Tyler did probably his best job in the whole series as far as actually sitting there and having to talk and interact with someone when he's not beating the hell out of them. Right. I have to wonder whether a guy like that was interested, like whether he was like, oh, this could really lead to something. You know what I mean? Like, or was he just like, ah, it's all good. Everything's all the same. You know what I mean? Like, I, I never know about some of these actors that whether they, you know, want to do more or is Tom Tyler like, I like being a cowboy and this is fun too. You know, like maybe he didn't look at it as like, this was going to be a springboard to anything. I would imagine, you know, superhero movies weren't like they are now. So maybe it was, he looked at this as the same as playing the mummy or playing a cowboy or anything like that. In, in chapter eight, uh, boomerang, there's the, another instance of a, of a nice little, um, effect they do where Marvel will be fighting a bunch of guys. He'll lean over to grab one guy. And that's when they do the camera cut. And, the guy that he's about to pick up is turned into a dummy. And that's when they have Tom Tyler, like throw the guy across the room. You see the effect over and over again, but it's, it's actually pretty well done. And it's, it's funny once you recognize it, you're like, Oh, here, all right, he's tossing another dummy across the room. It's well done, but there there are, you can kind of tell though, it's, you know, it's a dummy. And so the way it lands and stuff and like a leg or an arm will bend in a way that really a human beings could not do. I, but I enjoyed it. I mean, it's like it's a nice, it's a nice little bit. Uh, in chapter nine, uh, there's this great moment where they see there's a, a torture cage someone has built into their house, and they also have secret machine gun panels where these little doors swing open and machine guns come out, which I always thought was like a great, you know, you get, like supervillains get that stuff installed in their houses and things like that. Oh, that was one of my favorite devices too. I really love that machine gun thing. Yeah. And that was bloody. The fact that they were going to shoot Billy and Betty like that with this machine gun. You, I mean, and we saw what happened to the one bad guy who, who took a couple bullets from that thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's nice. It's it. It's it's good. I I always I always wonder about like, you know, who has the money to get all this stuff done? You know, to get all this stuff put in, and you know, you get, get like workers come in and you know get tested. I got to fire the machine gun across the room <laughs> just in case I need all this stuff. So, in chapter ten, 
uh, there's a whole sequence on a, like a not a cruise ship but like a, a cargo ship, which is actually again really well done. There's some they they splash the cast with water, and in the background we've got some rear projection uh, of all these storm waves. And again, it's a really it's it's pretty good. It looks pretty real for for 1941. Now at one point though during the sequence. You know, Billy's on the boat with everybody as they head back to Thailand or Siam, and Captain Marvel shows up there. And it's like, does anybody, I guess nobody's ever going to figure out that Billy is Captain Marvel. I guess that's one of the great hooks of the character is that, you know, it's not like it's Clark Kent and Superman who reasonably look like the same guy. Most people are, you know, they're never going to figure out that Billy Batson is Captain Marvel because it's two completely different guys. And it's like, that's, that's a great hook. You know, everybody wonders, why does Marvel keep showing up? where Billy Batson is, but, you know, maybe they're friends or something. Although this chapter, and I love that boat scene, I thought that was one of, the way they handled the storm was great, but this was another example where it drove me nuts that Billy did not change way earlier several times to Captain Marvel with what was going on, because they were a pretty hairy situation the whole time, and it was interesting to me that he didn't just, like, and I realized it was because of the budget and special effects limitations. But, you know, in the comic, he just would have picked up the boat and take it to shore. Right. But when they had to get the people from the boat to the shore, you know, he takes the rope. They create this big pulley device. And then every person on the ship needs to get individually transported. So we got an abbreviated version. But this rescue must have taken hours to get that ship evacuated and everything. You know, just a few dozen people. And it was just a very kind It's interesting in the old days with the limitations, how they had to come up with these kind of elaborate means to accomplish stuff where in a comic book, you know, one panel, the character just picks up the ship and everyone's fine. You know, I wonder how many like naval movies they shot on the set, you know, like how many Navy adventures and all these kinds of, cause I'm sure they're just reusing the sets over and over again. So they probably filmed, you know, three dozen, uh, war films on the same set, you know, with the, with the same level of effects. They're probably like, all right, get the Captain Marvel guys out of here. Now let's move on. So <laughs> let's get, you know, the Navy guys. See, I'm imagining that while they're filming, there's like a whole other film crew just wait, patiently yeah. waiting for them to finish so they can move in. But yeah. were, this serial did a good job of incorporating stock footage. You know, they managed to film their scenes in a way that when they threw in the stock footage, you really accepted it as being part of what was going on for this particular film. Yeah, yeah, they may, yeah. Blend, I guess it's part of the reason, again, black and white helps with that, is that, you know, color stock footage is so much more noticeable. But black and white, it's all fit, you know, basically you can, other than the graininess of some of it, you generally it all fits in pretty well. So they said they do a, they do a nice job. In Chapter 11, we get to see the Scorpion's letterhead, which I think is a lot of fun. Like he actually has like a professional letterhead done. He went to like a Kinko's of 1941 and he got that, got that done. And then in the, um, the final chapter, which is Captain Marvel's secret, he's, the only, my problem with these last two chapters is that Marvel's not in it that much. Like, it's really heavily uh, Billy Batson. Um, we do see uh, Betty get trussed up, kind of like Faye Ray at the, during King Kong. And then there's the whole hook about where the Scorpion kidnaps Betty, and he demands from Billy Batson to reveal Captain Marvel's secret, or he'll kill Betty, which actually was like a pretty decent way to end it. Yeah, what, there was one thing, and I think this is the only time they could have cheated on something, which is in Chapter 11 when you have the two last guys from the expedition in the room, and you know one of them's the scorpion, and one kills the other, and they've got it dark, so you can't see their faces. So when one comes out dressed as a scorpion, you're not sure which one it is. I think they purposely switched the actors, because by that time, I, even though I didn't care who the scorpion was, you could kind of tell the voice in the faces, and I kind of feel like they had the one who turned out to be the scorpion playing the part of the guy who was killed just to throw you off a little, which kind of mm, thought was a little bit of it. It was the only time I think they did kind of cheat a little in a way that bugged me. But I still loved um, the whole rescue of Betty. The fact that, although Billy waited a long time, because basically <laughs> he kept, the scorpion was saying, I'm going to kill Betty if you don't tell me the secret of Captain Marvel. And he literally waited until they got Betty over and the scorpion's hand was about to pull the trigger at that. That seemed kind of a little unnecessary because Betty kept looking over at Billy like, come on. You're going <laughs> to... Right, you're gonna get him. Yeah, come on, he died now. Could you turn and into frankly, the superhero the scorpion, and defeat this guy? The scorpion's idea of like taking off the gag, to, so Billy could tell him his secret, not the brightest move. No, no, not necessarily. Uh, and the, the, the strangest uh, thing I think about this whole serial is that after the scorpion is defeated, um, they basically establish that Captain Marvel is no longer needed. 
like they're like okay we can just retire him he's he's because of course his origin is so tied into the scorpion now the scorpion's defeated there's no captain marvel anymore which like wow like okay now i mean obviously if uh, republic had ever decided to do a sequel they could have brought captain marvel back in a moment's notice but it it's sort of funny that they sort of uh, just retire captain marvel at this point that was the thing I mentioned when we first started recording that did really bother me about the origin version here, that they did that. Because it could have been so easy for them to throw in a line where he says, you know, Billy, now that you've proven yourself able to handle the man- mantle of Captain Marvel, go out and help the world and be a hero. Or I mean, he didn't have to take it away at the end, mm-hmm. even if they had taken care of the Scorpion. So I didn't understand why they did that. Because, yeah, it does tie you in. If you do another sequel, you have to tie it into the Scorpion. You can't just come up with a new storyline, which I thought was kind of a shame. And they now they did actually – they did not do a sequel to the movie Serial in film form, but there was a sequel to this. Um, Fawcett Publications had their version of Big Little Books, and I think they were called Dime Action Novels. And they did one called Return of the Scorpion, and I've never read it, and I've not been able to find very much information about it. And I've always been curious if it kept the continuity of the movie Serial – or if it did the continuity of the comic book, or if there was some mishmash between the two where they kind of lifted. And I, someday I want to get that book and read it and find out which version of Captain Marvel they used. That's so weird that it was done as a as a big little book, like not as a comic book or something. That's I wonder, geez, I've never even heard of that. I wonder if that's really expensive to pick up. I mean, I, I have like the Aquaman big little book, so... They're not all they're not all that that expensive. That I would love to read that myself. That sounds really it's interesting. It's not. It's not actually that expensive, but it's one of those things that's just expensive enough that if I'm going to buy it, I want I have to have some cash on me. You know, I'm not, you know, I think you could probably get it for like fifty to hundred dollars or something. Yeah, but that's, that's a, someday you know, I do plan to pick it up. That's expensive enough that it kind of gives you pause. You know, that's not like it's twenty bucks. You're like, oh, I could drop twenty yeah. bucks, no problem. But yeah, it's not like heading out to the comic store and just grabbing a few books. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of cash. But oddly enough, it was the first time Auto Bender the comic writer, ever worked on the character of Captain Marvel. He wow. wrote that dime action novel. And, you know, of course, he went on in, like, the second year of Captain Marvel to become the main writer and the character for the yeah. rest of his golden age existence. Basically, like, turn Captain Marvel into the character, which also makes me want Otto Bender tended to be a pretty whimsical-type writer, so it's odd to me to think what kind of mood he would have in that action. It's hard to imagine it fitting with the universe they created in this movie serial. So right, with the crocodile man really that's really cool. I didn't know that. That's that's. Really I always wonder why Republic didn't do a sequel to this. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know how there was any way of knowing how popular a movie serial was because, you know, when you bought a ticket, you, you it came with the movie serial and the newsreel and the cartoons and the movie. So presumably, the movie was the thing that was driving the ticket sale. So I don't know how anybody could ascertain what movie serial was popular over others. Like they did two Supermans, they did two Batmans, but they only did one Captain Marvel. So I don't know, maybe, and Republic, you know, went on to make hundreds of other movie serials. It's just interesting to me that they never bothered to, to do this again. Yeah. I've never understood it for a couple of reasons. One, you know, even if it didn't make as much money or something, it wasn't successful, which is hard to believe given its reputation now, but they then went on to do spy smasher. So they yep. still had a relationship with Fawcett and this came out before Captain Marvel exploded in the comics. You right. know, flash forward another two years, and he's the most popular comic book character. So I would think even if there was something disappointing about the box office of the first one, they still would have been like, well, now Captain Marvel's like the number one guy. We, we want to hang on to this property and try again. But I don't know. I'll never understand that. And I've never heard a good explanation as to why they didn't do a sequel to it. Hmm. It was re-released. This whole serial was re-released in the 50s. I think under the title Captain Marvel Returns, but it's it's just the serial being re-released. It was not, you know, as you said, there was no sequel, so he didn't return. It's 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 labeled Returns the way Batman Returns is Returns. You know, it's like he's not returning anywhere. They're just that's the title of the movie. So, uh, and it was always you know, it, it never really fully went away. Like I said, it was always in the back of those those DC treasuries where they would talk about you know DC and DC on the, in the movie screens or like. Amazing World of DC Comics would do, you know, articles on their live-action adaptations, and they always had stills from it. And, of course, as I said, they had the 70s Shazam TV series and then the uh, the late 70s Shazam cartoon show. So as long as, you know, Shazam 
continued to, you know, constantly. And there was a lot of Shazam merchandise in the 70s. So this was one of the things. I remember when this was on VHS. Like, this was one of the first movie serials ever put on VHS. And it was, you know, it was really cool. I was like, wow, I get to have Captain Marvel. And now um, it was on DVD for the longest time. And now it's on Blu-ray. Kino Lorber, who puts out a really interesting cross-section of stuff, just put it out on Blu-ray with, like, a audio commentary tracks by film historians and it comes with um, it's really beautiful sleeve art. It came out in the middle of September. They did a really nice job on it and I want to pick that up because even though, as you said, it's not something you watch you know, in one sitting. It's nice to watch it in fits and starts and I'd like to hear the commentary. I'd like to hear some of these old historians talk about it. So I intend to pick that up and so it's 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 available. It's out there. Um, so if anybody wants to, to get it, he said you can watch it for free on YouTube or you can get the deluxe version. So it's re- it's really well done. It's still one of the best movie serials I think ever done. Um, I haven't. I'm not an expert on them. I still haven't seen the Spy Smasher one, which you talked, which we talked about on Treasury Cast, and uh, you just mentioned here. I do want to see that at some point. But this is still highly entertaining. And if you're a Captain Marvel fan, man, it's uh, it's it's just just great fun. I definitely want to get that Blu-ray because I've only ever seen bootleg copies and the um, YouTube version, which is not none of those are the highest quality. So I'd really like to sit down once and see just a high quality scan of this film. You mentioned earlier too how it's kind of always been there. Back in the '60s, there was a sort of a, a little phase of um, taking movie serials and re-editing them into TV movies. Right. And Captain Marvel was one of the ones that they did that with. So it was played on television in the 60s as like a TV movie. I'm not sure how frequently, if it was a one-time thing, but it, it, it did happen. Um, it's one interesting footnote of this serial is Captain Marvel's tunic kind of went on to have a life of its own after the film. It There were a couple of them, but one of them ended up as one of the Kryptonian council members <laughs> in the first episode of the Adventures of Superman TV show. That's great. It's a uh, cinematic universe. Yeah, so if you're watching next, if you ever see that, look around and you'll see one of the the Kryptonians wearing that. And there was also a TV series in the 50s called Space Patrol, where one of the characters was wearing it there. And then also in the 70s, Buster Crab, who played Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and uh, Tarzan, other characters in a lot of movie serials, he was in an airline commercial. And he was a much older man at this point. He was like in his 60s or 70s. But one of the, for some reason, one of the things this airline was pitching was the fact that they played old movie serials, which, hmm. yeah, I, maybe their nostalgia was kicking in for the gen, older generation then who was paying for the tickets. But they had Buster Crabbe sitting in the audience watching himself play as Flash Gordon, and he's wearing that um, tunic in there. Really? Where, is this commercial on YouTube? Yeah, you can get it. It's interesting, too, because there's like two pitchmen for the airline. It's almost like an infomercial because it's not just a minute or two. It's like 10 minutes or so. And one of the pitchmen is the guy who played Peter Parker in the 70s Spider-Man series, I guess, when he was first getting started. What the? But you can see, <laughs> I know it's it's weird. It is one of those things when I first see it, it's just kind of my brain is having trouble processing that this thing even exists. But at some point when they make the pitch in a movie series, you see Buster Crabbe sitting and he makes some crack about you know, recognizing that guy. And he's wearing, for some reason, instead of the Flash Gordon tunic, he's got the Captain Marvel tunic on. And if you're ever in um, Seattle, at the there's a science fiction museum there that I was at a few years ago, and one of the things on display is the Captain Marvel tunic. Really? It's still around? Yeah, I mean, at least, remember, there were multiple ones. So I don't know if this was, like, one magical tunic that... Stayed in all these things all these decades, or if there was different ones that went off into different prop stores or what. But I took a picture of it, but unfortunately, at least when I was there like six or seven years ago, it is so dark. Like the whole, it's in, it's part of that greater musical museum. It's like this little subsection that's a science fiction museum. Mm-hmm. And it's just so dark that almost none of my pictures, anything is very visible. You can wow. kind of barely make it out. But if you're there, you can see the Captain Marvel tunic. Hopefully, it's still on display. That's amazing. That really, first of all, you broke my brain with that commercial. I, that's just so bizarre. But that's that's remarkable that the, the, even if there were multiple ones, that any of them are still around. That's great. I love that stuff. I think that's, I just, I'm really totally charmed by that. I think that's that's fantastic. Yeah, it was one of the things I was most, because when I went there, I didn't know what to expect. I'd seen a picture of like Captain Kirk's, one of his chairs or something. And I had no idea that was going to be there when I walked in. So that was probably my favorite thing to see. Oh, man, I love that. That's great. That's super cool. So I'll hopefully find a way to work it into the movie. 
Uh, it's it's funny. Uh, you know what? This is actually perfect timing. Why don't we talk about it just briefly before we sign off here? Just as we're recording this, the news broke that uh, Zachary Levy from Chuck has been cast as Captain Marvel in the actual, you know, the supposed Shazam movie that uh, DC's been talking about making for like 10 years. What is your, your first impression of, of that casting news? Casting-wise, as far as the film, I'm actually okay with that, and it does give me a little hope that is going to be lighter in tone than the other DC films, which I think is the better approach. (laughs) I mean, I have to, I don't want to go negative. You know, we've been talking about something that we both love so much, but I'm not the biggest fan of some of the DC film slate now and the approach they've taken on some. So I've been very, not terribly thrilled with the idea of the Captain Marvel movie being made. One, I doesn't, it's a far cry between even this to there actually being a film. Right. But let's just say I had concerns. But I do think that he is appropriate casting. I mean, some people are like, well, he's not a muscle guy. And I'm, but none of these guys are before. Yeah, him. Buff him up. So, yeah, I mean, Hugh Jackman is a pretty lanky guy in real yeah. life. And they send him to the gym every few years and yeah. make him do this unhealthy diet. And then right. he looks ripped as hell. Right. They can do that easily. But he's got the basic kind of facial look. And He's been in stuff that's lighter in tone, so it hope it gives me hope that when they do it, they are going to go in the direction I would hope they would, which was to have a lighter superhero film. I don't want it to be a comedy. I'm not saying that. Right. But I'm saying I want his character to be a more wholesome, family-friendly – I want it to be – I mean, like, I'll be honest with you. It bothered me that a lot of the films over the last few years from D.C., I didn't feel I could take my young kids to. Right. This kind of hints to me that I could take – my young kids to this, this would be something they, they'd be old enough to see. So was that a long and convoluted enough answer to the simple question you asked me? No, no, I understand what you're saying. No, I, yeah, without without getting into the whole thing about what we feel the other movies, of, of all the characters I don't want to see them take a heavy tone on, it would, been, it would be Shazam, Captain Marvel. And you, I don't know much about Zachary Levy. I never did. I didn't watch Chuck. But then when he played uh, Fandral in the Thor movies, I was like, oh, Okay, like I, he's plausible here. I, I can see this, and I am glad that I mean, as you said, they can bulk him up. I mean, God, any of us have seen those Superman movie screen tests with Christopher Reeve. He was a beanpole, and, and it was more about the heart that he brought to it. And then they, you know, handed him off to David Prowse and said, "Bulk him up." And they did the same thing with Chris Evans. And, you know, I mean, so I had heard, you know, there was this rumor that like, oh, they're going to cast John Cena as Captain Marvel, and I was like. If they cast John Cena, they're not really worried about Captain Marvel, to me, being a really decent character. They're just going for bulk. And, you know, I, that doesn't – nothing against John Cena, but I was like, I, he's not really an actor. Can he can, can he pull off being Captain Marvel? But by casting an actual actor, that they're worrying about the physique part of it later, which you can – as you just said, you can always do. So I don't have a great one opinion about Zachary Levy one way or the other, but I'm perfectly fine. With, with it, and if it's a lighter tone and it befits the character, then then great, you know? So Yeah, you made an excellent point, too, that one of my, another fear I had about the film is there was so much promotion about Dwayne Johnson, the rock being Black, Black Adam. Adam yeah. yeah, who I actually think is good casting, but they were so, there's been so much about it that I was afraid that he was going to get too much focus. I mean, I think there's even talk of him getting, like, a film first at some point. I don't know how reliable that was. That I did feel like Captain Marvel would end up being almost an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had the same reaction with you when I heard the John Cena, which, I mean, I, he seems like a fine guy, but he doesn't have a lot of acting experience. Whereas, you're right, the fact that they picked a real actor does give me some hope that they do plan to treat Captain Marvel as a real person or character with his own dialogue, his own story. You know, it's he's he's less likely to be overshadowed by The Rock, or at least not as much, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. It's really cool. Um, so yeah, this is Captain Marvel's. You know, one of the great comic characters, and I said he's the, this movie serial is a a great beginning to his sort of uh, outside of comics career. And I said anybody go give it if you haven't watched it, watch a couple chapters on YouTube. And I said it's out on Blu-ray, so you can pick it up. So, well, Michael, um, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. This is uh, this was a lot of fun. I know you're a huge fan of the character, and we had a lot of fun over on. Treasury cast, so um, it was great being able to chance to to talk to you about this, and it was fun having uh, the opportunity to go and rewatch the serial. 
Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I had a really good time. It's it's one of those things I rewatch every few years, and it, it's always fun to go back and revisit it. So so I loved it. Cool. Uh, I got to give the uh, Spy Smasher one a, a spin now. I got to try that one. So uh, <laughs> oh, uh, Tom Tyler did also play the Phantom in the Phantom. Oh, I don't. Oh, I missed. I missed that. Okay, cool. Well, good for yeah, him. I don't know ah. if he played it in every Phantom, but he at least played a character once. So I'd have to go back and look. Good for him. All right, he's got a whole little genre career he built for himself. So, <laughs> uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, well, like you said, I'm on the Comics in Golden Age podcast, which um, we're on Twitter at Comics in the GA and on Facebook, Comics in the Golden Age, and you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And I do actually have a new show coming, which, of course, it was supposed to hit last month, but things came up personally, and I had to delay it a bit, but it's going to be the Kirby cast, which is going to cover the Bronze Age of comics creator Jack Kirby from the time he left Marvel to return to D.C., pretty much going through his return back to Marvel and his work for independent companies in the 80s. So I'm hoping to get that launched pretty soon. Very cool. I can't, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a deep, rich subject for a, a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much, I mean, so much is written to man. I'm not claiming I could bring a lot new, but it's going to be more of just, you know, a personal journey in his work and hopefully, you know, get a lot of feedback and discussion with people of, you know, their opinion of it, that sort of thing. Sounds very cool. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, you can find back episodes of the show over on our network site, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. And we're always talking movies over on Twitter at, at Film and Water Pod. So, uh, again, thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, Shazam! We'll show you. We'll show you why this continental wide-body DC-10 is more fun. This is our new first-class lounge where we have an assorted buffet. In Coach, we'll show you our pub. Yes, the pub is back, and it's more fun than ever. <laughs> With electronic pub pong, it's fun and games all the way. On our wide DC-10 screen, and at no extra cost, we'll show you the best of the old-time cereals. I think I know that guy. Just hands off her. He used to be my idol. We'll show you newsreels of yesterday. We'll show you exclusive interviews with the superstars of sport. We'll show you animated cartoons that are a laugh a mile. Fly Continental's wide-body DC-10. And we'll show you... On Continental Airlines.